Isaiah 4, verses 2 to 6. The branch of the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the woman of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. So every uh, Christian has some sense that we have a future hope in Christ, and I think many would describe that hope as uh, going to heaven. But that's pretty vague, and it can mean different things to different people. I wonder, what do you think about when we talk about heaven? Uh, Do you think about a real physical place, uh, perhaps a beautiful city or a Garden of Eden type setting? Do you think of some sort of cloud land with angels playing harps and everyone in uh, white robes? Uh, How do you picture heaven in your mind's eye? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about our future hope, but when we're reading our Bible, sometimes uh, we miss it. And so I think many Christians have a a hazy or even a misinformed um, idea of what that future hope looks like. Isaiah talks about four main things or four phases of God's relationship with his people. Uh, in fact, all of the Old Testament prophets allude to these four things. Let me tell you what they are. But, but actually, before I do that, let's remember that most of the prophets came after the time uh, when the kingdom of Israel split in two. We looked at this uh, a couple of weeks ago, so, or, or even last week. So after the reign of King Solomon, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So we keep that in mind, and we go back to um, the four phases of God's relationship uh, with his people um, that Isaiah spoke of. So firstly, Isaiah talks about the present Uh, as in the present for him when he gave these prophecies. And he draws Judah's attention, uh, because we're speaking to the leaders of the southern kingdom, he draws Judah's attention to their idolatry, their injustice, and their immorality. And he calls the people to repent. And if they don't, bad things are going to happen. Specifically, they'll be conquered by uh, this new world superpower, the Babylonians, and they'll be taken off uh, into exile which is what happened. Secondly, he talks about a future hope in terms of Judah returning from their Babylonian exile and inhabiting the land that God had given them. Uh, That happened. The exile only lasted about 70 years. So uh, um, Judah went into exile. They were there for 70 years. They returned to the land. Thirdly, he talks about the Messiah, who would rescue God's people, establish God's kingdom, and reign in righteousness. Uh, We know that to be Jesus. So that happened. Finally, he talks about a future hope in terms of the final 
order of things. That is to say, where everything is ultimately headed. And today's reading mostly fits into this fourth category of Isaiah's message. So if you want a more accurate picture of what our future hope looks like, pay careful attention. And it's important to say that the book of Isaiah is not strictly chronological. Uh, It's kind of vaguely chronological. So especially in the early chapters, you get some warnings about impending judgment, and then uh, you get some future hope, and then you get some more warnings, and then some more future hope, and you kind of see this uh, this cycle or this pattern uh, in the book of Isaiah. And the passage begins with this. It says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. So the first thing there is the branch of the Lord. Who or what is this branch? Well, to help us with this, it's helpful to um, go forward to Isaiah chapter 11. And reading from verse 1, it says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he continues to describe this person and the nature of his kingdom. It is, of course, referring to Jesus, even though he wouldn't be born for at least another 700 years. So if you imagine... Looking at Isaiah's analogy there, you imagine this huge, powerful tree that is the kingdom of Israel, or the kingdom of Israel and Judah, because they split. This is the analogy. It's like a huge tree. Uh, When I was 12, I went with my parents to California, and we visited Sequoia National Park, and we went to see the General Sherman tree, which is still the largest tree by volume in the world. It's 83 meters tall. That's like a 20-story building. And it looks absolutely immovable. You cannot imagine that tree ever not being there. And that's how God's people felt about their nation which is probably part of the reason they became proud and arrogant and disregarded God. They thought they were immovable, like this mighty tree. But even the greatest of trees can rot and be cut down. And Isaiah predicted that this tree or this nation would be cut down. And and once a tree like that is reduced to a stump, it's very hard to imagine that it could ever regain its former glory. But Isaiah's prophecy was that out of this stump would grow a little shoot that would lead to the restoration of Israel. In the Old Testament, uh, we often hear the phrase, the remnant of Israel, or as Isaiah puts it here, the survivors in Israel. Uh, Now, I don't want to muddy the waters, but when Judah returned from exile in Babylon, they became known as Israel again, because by that point, the northern kingdom had completely vanished and, and disappeared. So they went into exile as Judah, but when they came back, they were Israel. But the remnant of Israel is not so much the physical survivors of the exile, but those who continue to give their hearts and their worship to God. And in the New Testament, we discover something that is repeatedly hinted at in the Old Testament. Namely, uh, the people of Israel will not just include ethnic Jews, but people from all nations. 
In other words, the new Israel, the new Israel is anyone who gives their heart and their allegiance to God through their acceptance and worship of Jesus Christ. What that means for us is that we belong to the new Israel, God's people, newly defined. So when Isaiah speaks of the survivors of Israel in the context of a future hope, future even for us, well, we're included in that. Isaiah is talking about the ultimate hope for all of God's people. And here's what he says about those people, reading from verse 3. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. I should just say here, where it says the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion, there's no suggestion that it's just the women who are sinful and need to be cleansed. Uh, In chapter 3, Isaiah has already addressed the ineptitude and the corruption of Israel's male leaders, and uh, almost all of Isaiah's criticisms are uh, directed at male and uh, female, men and women alike. Um, But what he's saying here is quite amazing. He's saying that people who are corrupt and filthy and sinful will be made holy. This applies to us as well. Uh, We will be judged. We will all face God's judgment. But if we put our trust in Jesus at the same time, as Isaiah puts it, we'll be purified by the spirit of fire. Now, here's the thing. Isaiah and the Bible in general points us forward towards the ultimate future hope, what we sometimes call heaven. But we get glimpses of heaven in the here and now. For example, this idea that we will be made holy. As God's people, we are holy. We're holy now because God chooses to see see us that way because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has taken the weight and the consequences of all the sin and of all our sin and wrongdoing upon himself. But we're not sinless. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. We get things wrong. We rebel against God in all kinds of ways. In heaven, we will be made perfect. And we get a glimpse of that now because God changes our character for the better. God starts to transform us into the people that he's created us to be, providing we're willing to work in partnership and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And we see the change in people. We see the change in ourselves. Looking at the Apostle Paul, he was uh, present at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He approved of that stoning. He dedicated himself to destroying the church. He went around literally dragging Christians out of their homes and throwing them into prison until he met with Jesus on the road to Damascus and he changed and in fact became the person who's most responsible for the spread of Christianity around the whole of the ancient world. What a change. A complete 180 degree turn. That kind of transformation is still happening today. A friend of mine called Michael Emmett got caught uh, trying to bring five tons of cannabis into the UK. Um, At the time, it was the biggest haul of cannabis that the police had seized. He was a nasty character. 
but he became a Christian in prison. And now he goes around telling everyone about Jesus. He's in his 60s now, and he's the most warm-hearted, lovely guy you could ever wish to meet. Still looks like a London gangster, but he's a really lovely guy. Now, I won't rehearse my own testimony. Many of you have uh, heard that before. But if you'd met me 20 years ago, you wouldn't even recognize me as the same person. Selfish, scathing, mocking, sarcastic, a heavy drinker, violent. It's like night and day. I'm aware of the filth and the um, word that Isaiah used here has to do with vomit, so it's not very nice. I'm aware of the filth of my own sin. But I also know that God has changed me tremendously, and he continues to change me, just as he continues to change you. And I know of drug addicts and prostitutes and crooked politicians who have had their lives and their characters completely changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter who you are, how sinful, how fallen, how dark your life is, God can change you and put you on a trajectory to perfection. We won't be perfect this side of the grave, but the tremendous change that takes place over the course of our lives gives us the assurance that we will one day be made perfect. We get a glimpse of what is coming. So looking forward to our ultimate hope, to heaven, we will be numbered among a holy people who have been made perfect living in the glorious and beautiful presence of the branch of the Lord, which is, of course, Jesus. We won't be living in some kind of cloud land. We'll be living in a real physical world. Remember uh, verse 2, the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. There will be land. The land will produce fruit, produce food. We'll have bodies with which to eat that food. Because it's not that we're going to heaven, it's more the case that heaven and earth will meet. They'll be conjoined. Listen to what Isaiah says next. He says, Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and the rain. In line with the uh, book of Isaiah and the work of the prophets in general, this is quite symbolic language, but it points to something very real. Now, to any Jew hearing or reading this, and hopefully for us as well, because we've been reading our Bibles and we've been reading the Old Testament, haven't we? When we hear the words smoke by day and a glow of fire by night, we immediately think of the Exodus story when God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt. When uh, the Israelites escaped from Egypt and they were wandering around the Sinai Desert, they had the tabernacle, which is kind of like a mobile temple, a big tent, uh, which was a dwelling place of God. That's where Moses met with God. And the sign of God's presence was the smoke by day and the fire by night that was permanently over the tabernacle. You can read about it in Exodus 40. And what Isaiah does is he talks about a real location here on earth, Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. And he talks about God's presence in terms of this smoke and this fire. And what he's saying is that God will come to dwell among his people. 
There won't be any need for a tabernacle or a temple because God will be here with us in person. And God's presence with his people will guarantee that they have shelter and shade and refuge and a hiding place. Uh, Not literally, but what he's talking about is God's protection. Ultimately, God's people will have no fear of anything. They will live in total peace. As it says in Revelation 21, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So we put all this together. We've got God's presence represented uh, by the cloud and the fire. We've got God's provision. Remember the fruit of the land in verse 2. And we've got God's protection that we just spoke about. And again, we get glimpses of those things in the here and now, God's presence, provision, and protection. We enjoy God's presence when we gather for worship like this, or when we kneel down in our room to pray. In fact, we can enjoy God's presence anytime and any place, firstly, because God is omnipresent, he's everywhere at once, and secondly, because we've been filled with God's Holy Spirit. The psalmist says, Uh, to the Lord, he says, where can I flee from your presence? Well, this has always been the case, but how much more so now that we are filled with God's Holy Spirit? You can't run away from something that is literally dwelling within you. We cannot flee from God's presence. That's why Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? It's a bit of a cliche, you hear that thing, oh, my body is a temple. But actually, this is where it comes from, and the the proper meaning of it. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We don't need a tabernacle. We don't need a physical temple, a building, because God lives within us. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives us a glimpse of heaven when we will be in God's glorious presence forever. Then there's God's provision God promises to provide for our needs, not necessarily uh, all our wants, but certainly our needs. Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. When I began training for ordination, I had to give up my job. I I, I still had a part-time job, but that's all I could manage because of the, the studies, Uh, At the time, Isabel was two, uh, Caleb was on the way, and before I started the training, Tissa and I sat down to work out our finances, and we put everything on a spreadsheet, Tissa loves spreadsheets, and uh, we put all our income and our expenditure, uh, we put everything down there, and the final figure was thousands of pounds in the red. On paper, it looked like we didn't have anywhere near enough income even to cover the basics. So we prayed about it. And you know what? We had a roof over our heads the whole time. We never went hungry. We had clothes to wear and nappies, lots of nappies. We even managed to get away on a holiday. I've no idea how it happened. Well, I do, but I don't know how it worked mathematically. I don't know how God worked it out. And when we see God's provision like this, it teaches us to trust the bigger promise of God's eternal provision. We get another glimpse of what God has in store for us. 
Finally, there's God's protection. Now, we live in a fallen and broken world where there is illness and injury and mishap, and Christians are not immune from these things. But every now and again, something happens, and we witness God's protection in a remarkable way. Um, When I was in my early 20s, I was driving along with a group of mates in the car, and uh, there was a lot going, a lot of of noise and conversation and distraction, and I got distracted, and I pulled out of a junction right in front of a massive truck that was thundering down the road towards us, and it literally looked like the truck was right next to the car. Uh, I'd already pulled out, so I was committed. All I could do was put my foot down and hope for the best, and somehow that truck didn't hit us. But afterwards... All four of us who were in that car said we thought we were going to die. And uh, one of my mates, a guy called Al, who is in no way religious, he immediately said, that was divine intervention. There is no other explanation. And I look back on that, I think, yeah, maybe that was God protecting me. And actually, there's been a lot of times in my life when I felt that God has protected me, and I bet there's a lot of uh, you who would say the same thing. Again, sometimes we can get a little glimpse of God's protection in the here and now. Isaiah points us to the reality of heaven, our ultimate hope for the future. But as it turns out, heaven is not some place that we get whisked off to as disembodied spirits. What we look forward to is a renewed and restored creation, a real physical world where heaven and earth meet, a place where God's people have been made perfect to enjoy his presence, provision, and protection forever. And we get a glimpse of all that now through our relationship with God, through our relationship with Jesus. And we can be sure that one day what we now see only in part will be an awesome and wonderful reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing plans that you have for us, for your people, for the whole of creation, revealed to us in the Old Testament and brought into focus in the New. But Lord, in our busy lives with all the stuff that we've got going on, the things that might be worrying us, concerning us, the troubles that we might have, it's it's sometimes hard to grasp the significance of this, uh, of this promise, of these promises that you've made for us. It's hard to see that this really is the future reality for us. I pray, Lord, that you help us to, to taste it a little bit this morning, to, to grasp it, to see it, and to give you thanks and praise that one day this chaotic world will be brought into order and made just as you intended it to be, and that includes each one of us. We thank you so much for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.